Welcome to episode two of the aptly named Cleveland State University Psychology Club podcast. I should say, I didn't say this at the beginning of the first episode, but yeah, this um, podcast is a product of a student organization here at Cleveland State called the Psychology Club. And yeah. this is a yeah, student organization that's open to anyone who wants to join. You could be a psychology major. You could not be a psychology major. Um, yeah. We're always uh, looking for some uh, new and interesting ideas. I think that's how we came up with this idea of podcast. Um, it's been... Uh, it's been a student initiative, and uh, things have been looking great. So here on episode two, we talked to uh, Dr. Shireen Nasser, and she is an assistant professor here in Cleveland State University's Department of Psychology. Uh, she received her PhD in psychology from uh, Tulane University. She is a former school psychologist, and we talked a lot of, about a lot of interesting stuff here. Um, what, what stood out for you in this podcast? Well, I think um, talking about how students of different cultural backgrounds, the way that they have different experiences in school, some of the things that we can do to try to level the playing field a bit. Yes. Um, I mean, one one of the things that stood out was that how people from different experiences that are not normal uh, tend to look at school and their experiences in school and how those... Um, uh, how the school experience gets filtered uh, from the cult- uh, f- um, because of the background from which they are coming from. That's one thing that stood out to me. Something that gets lost. We just assume that everybody who goes to school gets the same experience, but it turns out that that's not the case. Um, uh, the the home environment that you come from uh, radically affects the type of experience that you'll have when you go to school. Uh, that was an interesting uh, conversation to have, um, which I would say we are having as a culture, and we need to have more. What? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I also like talking about um, the special topics class that I took with her, in which we sort of broke down how mental illness is depicted yes. in the broader culture, be it news media, film, television, and just yeah, like the, that's, what, that, what are the consequences of that? That's going to be juicy talking points. There's so many different opinions of people. Some people uh, take a lot of problems with it. Some people think that it's not a big deal. It's, after all, just entertainment. Um, the, what's interesting is the fact that there is research showing that how mental illness gets depicted does affect how people think about mental illness. And uh, I think uh, Dr. Nasir did a good a uh, uh, good job of explaining us how it affects uh, uh, the day-to-day thinking, uh, uh, how it affects the day-to-day person's thinking about how mental illnesses uh, are uh, experienced and what it is. Yeah, this was a very good conversation. So with nothing further from us, let's just get right into the episode. So how did you originally become interested in psychology? I have actually been taking psychology classes since I was a sophomore in high school or maybe a junior in high school. Hmm. Um, I was in an international baccalaureate school, and I was allowed to take these electives. And psychology, I was taking biology, and I was like, this seems like a nice little pairing. Um, And so I took it, and I've been in love ever since. So I'm a lifelong psychology fan. I'm also the oldest of seven kids. um, And so I guess I've always been kind of interested in human behavior. I've always been interested in science and the science of, like, observing behavior. Um, Jane Goodall is one of my 
biggest kind of um, role models when I was yeah. growing up. I used to sit outside and like watch birds and take notes on birds, trying to be in Jane Goodall. Um, so then I thought that the perfect equivalent for that in, yeah. in studying human behavior was psychology. So it worked out great. At what point for you did uh, did the focus narrow down to what you're doing now? So when I was an undergraduate, I think every undergraduate has had that experience where like you're staying up till five in the morning because like, what am I going to do with my life? Hmm. And for me, it was like biology, like economic botany or um, international law or a PhD in psychology. And the thing that drove me to all of these was just questions about human behavior and ways human behavior interacted or was influenced by cultural questions of culture. For example, like economic botanies, the way humans interact with food, like food and, and plants, how we make medicine from plants and, and different food cultures and rituals. Um, international law, I was curious about how law was initiated or how it was used across different countries. Um, and then psychology, you know, was that broader picture, but I was always asking or thinking about how does culture impact the way we treat each other. Hmm. But I've also always had a deep interest in social issues of social justice and equity. Um, and I just didn't know what I was gonna do with that whole pull of things. Um, and so one day I was kind of looking on the internet, trying to ask this question of what the heck am I gonna do with my life? And I popped onto this question of school psychology. And again, being the oldest of seven kids, I've always, I have pictures of me at like five with two of my cousins or other siblings in my arms. I've just always been interested in kids. I used to line my siblings up to teach them how to read when they were like little tiny things. Um, I think one of the first books I remember reading was like how to, tr how to teach your infant to read. Like, so I've always wow. been interested in that too. And school psychology was just this hidden gem I'd never heard about that just let me do all of the things I wanted to do. It let me, look at how human behavior interacted, how do who different people, people who have different ideas and backgrounds, how do they interact in a space? Um, and also this question of equity, because I think education is one way we can, one of the ways that we can purport equity and um, promote and protect people from, you know, all, all kids specifically from all different um, backgrounds. So uh, some people might not be aware of what school psychology actually means yeah. and what what type of research it entails. So anybody who's curious about it, because you yeah. just give a very fascinating uh, picture of what what it might entail. Yeah. So what does it what does a day to day life look like for a school for psychologist? A school psych? Yeah. Um, I think school psychology is one like I wish more people knew about it because yeah. I think it's incredible. Mm -hmm. First of all, you can be a full practicing school psychology with the ability to do assessments and give interventions and do consultation with teachers, parents, principals, um, and, and work directly with kids with a master's and an internship. So you go to school for two years, take all the classes that you need, you do practicum, so you're doing hands-on learning while you're in graduate school, and then you take a year where you're um, almost a full-time school psychologist, but you're still supervised and you're still maybe doing some didactics, um, and then you become a school psychologist, and the career prospects are amazing in school psychology. It's been uh, voted like um, or rated one of the top 10 careers to have with US News and World Report for a long time now yeah. um, and 
sometimes you get summers off. <laughs> As you like progress in school psychology and you might become a director of people services or you are supervising other school psychologists, you might not get summers off, but for the most part, you work on this awesome school schedule and like how could you ask for better than that? Yeah. Um, and the day-to-day life of a school psychologist is always varied. So that was another thing that drew me and why I'm glad I practiced as a school psych is I was never in my desk for a long period of time. Hmm. I was working with kids directly, supervising recess, working with teachers one-on-one, asking hard questions, which I really loved doing, um, and figuring out solutions with a team. So it's a highly collaborative process. Um, School psychologists traditionally and historically have done a lot of assessments. So you've got a kid who's struggling with academics or behavior, and the question is why and what do we do with this? And is one of the pathways to this answer special education? And so school psychologists will use database decision-making tools to answer that question and then decide what the best placement is for a kid that honors the least restrictive environment for that kid. So that they're not just, you know, in this special classroom by themselves all the time, um, that they're getting the best education that they can, access to the best education that they can. How have you observed schools either providing supportive or marginalizing experiences for students of varying cultural backgrounds? Mm. That's a great question because I think it's one we as a country are constantly contending with. The history of education in this country when we look at race is segregated. Hmm. So from its very foundation, one of the ways that we um, enslaved people physically and intellectually was refusing to teach them, allow them to read, for example, black people in this country specifically. When we think about segregation now, legally segregation isn't, you know, allowed, but it still happens. So if you look at most urban school districts, you find that they're primarily those lines are split by people's racial identities. Um, And so I think that schools, in a big picture, in a systemic way, are perpetuating the segregation of people based on their skin color. When we look at it in an individual, we look at the school level, school building place, we perpetuate racism by not asking about our own, as people who work in schools, our own implicit biases, Hmm. how they're impacting us, by creating structures in our schools that further marginalize kids. For example, I do a lot of work with Arab youth, and we one of the things that Arab youth report to us constantly is that the only time Arab history is ever covered in any history class is either 9-11, and in the context of Arabs as terrorists only, um, or um, other kind of negative views as, of Arabs, and so especially Muslim Arabs. And so one of the questions that our students ask is like, we know that Arabs have this long history of doing lots of cool things, for example, math. <laughs> um, and so why isn't that covered in history? Yeah. So how and what we teach matters. And the context and the lens through which we teach it matters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the pictures in our history books, the text in our history books, the infographics in our biology textbooks. Another study that I'm running now with the Thrive Team, we're a research collaborative here at CSU, um, is how our how sexual health information covered for people who identify as LGBTQ+. So if I'm gay and I'm going in sex, I'm taking sex education and I'm looking at my sex ed textbook and it says that sex is only something that happens between a man and a woman, I might stop caring about sex education, Hmm. right? Because this isn't for me. This is not my identity. This doesn't answer the questions that I have. 
And our team is looking at if this is partially contributing to health disparities that we see for LGBTQ plus folks who um, suffer from higher rates of sexually transmitted um, diseases and also higher rates of pregnancy, um, early teenage pregnancy, and other health disparities. So what role does how we teach sex education play in my engagement in that at all? Yeah, it's not as if that time of life can't be alienating enough as it is, no right. matter who you are. And right. if you start throwing in more factors, it's kind of like, you know, um, like, what am I doing here? Yeah. Like, yeah. do I fit in here? Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And so, like, that's just, I mean, I think, so that's school structure, right? So school building, school structure. And then we look down at how... I said implicit biases, we should ask about our implicit biases. Implicit biases are things that we might not consciously put out into the world, hmm. but ways that we've been trained or taught then plays out in the way we behave and interact with other people. Hmm. Again, potentially unconsciously. So one of the areas of study for me is we know that there is a huge di racial disproportionality in who gets disciplined in schools. And we know that black, Latinx, and Native American youth get disciplined at exponentially higher rates than their peers. That means that they're being sent out of the classroom more, suspended or expelled more, they're receiving office discipline referrals more that have huge, and all of this has huge implications for if they graduate from high school, what their grades look like, yeah. right? How they feel about going to school. And so one of the things that the research has told us is if you hold everything else equal, so let's say you give um, school personnel vignettes, so they read a story about a kid, and some people get um, a kid named Colin, right? Mm. And another set of people get a kid named Carlos. Everything else is held exactly the same. Those names invoke... Um, an idea of racially what this kid might be like. Yeah. We find, again, when everything else is held the same for these fictional characters, essentially, mm. that those biases that we see play out at school still exist. Mm. Um, and there have been lots of different studies that look at this in different ways, and we can just easily conclude that implicit biases play out in the way, in who gets disciplined mm. and how they get disciplined. Um, and so some of my research looks at, can we intervene there? What questions can we ask? How can we give teachers the tools yeah. um, to change that pattern? So that, that, that was one question I was about to ask. The in implicit bias thing to correct those implicit biases or to create more, um, I would say, less discriminatory environment for people who have not had access historically to some of the mm -hmm. education uh, that you mentioned. Uh, how do we go about readdressing re that? Uh, I mean, I know it's it's not an easy question, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it does uh, include a lot of uh, complex factors and stuff like that, but what are the, some ways in which we as psychologists can mm -hmm. address it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think what's really neat about psychology, again, and school psychology specifically, is mm -hmm. that we are trained in all of these broad areas, right? We have the capacity to ask questions and look at solutions in many different ways. Mm -hmm. And so for me, my research, the, the way that I've kind of tried to look at these questions is from a structural standpoint. Okay. So we need to redo our curriculum. Mm -hmm. Our curriculum needs to be more inclusive. That's just across the board. Okay. Are, for me, when I look at um, disp discipline disproportionality, so who's getting discipline and why, one of my questions is, well, how are we collecting data? It's super subjective. Hmm. So when teachers are stressed out, which often they are, because <laughs> yeah. they are overworked, underpaid, asked yeah. to do a whole lot of different stuff, the potential for implicit bias 
those those decision making points when when a kid is acting out in the classroom i'm stressed out the behavior is kind of ambiguous i'm not sure what's going on here that exact moment is a vulnerable decision point and the potential for my implicit biases to play out in that situation are higher there mm. is this idea in cognitive theory that um, when we come down to that decision point, we've got two kind of systems working in our brain. One is might be more rational and more data-reliant, data asks questions and takes time to make a response. The other is more automatic. It yeah. might be the part of our brain that comes into play when we're running away from a lion. Because you're not going to sit down and be like, I wonder if the lion's dangerous. You're going to get the heck out of there, yes. right? And so that brain, that automatic brain, is kind of what's working yeah. when we're making these decisions in this ambiguous, stressful situation. And so I'm asking what structures can we put in place to act, to get that decision-making point slowed down, Wow. right? Yeah. And then when we are talking about kids, what kind of data can we use? How can we make sure the data is good hmm. so that we're not just relying on subjective decisions or dis subjective anecdotes about that kid's behavior when we're making decisions? Which is obviously, if it's subjective, it'll be contaminated by the implicit biases. Exactly. So it's not it's not a good data to rely on. Right. That's and then we see that, again, when we look at data at the systems level, we see it play out. Yeah. So uh, what would be some of uh, the ways in which we can structurally, structurally readdress these things? Mm -hmm. So one of the studies, I recently got a grant to actually yeah. chest out one of the things I'd like to do, yeah. which is um, in that moment, training teachers to slow their thinking, the decision-making process down. Hmm. And we're doing kind of a two-pronged approach. One, putting a structure into place that will slow teachers' decision-making down, okay. giving them many options and not just a discipline option to choose from when suggesting a follow-up for that kid. Okay. And three, having when decisions are made about the kid, having mental health data on the table so that we're not just saying this kid's behavior is bad behavior. They need to go to a place where bad kids go. Yeah. Instead, it's asking the long-term question of what are the underlying things that are going on for this kid. I mean, if you've ever had a bad day, those are the days where you are being a little bit more mean to people, a little bit more short with folks, maybe a bit more irritable. Yeah. Kids aren't given the luxury and may not have the ability, depending on their age, to be like, I had a really bad day today. I really need a time, you know, time to myself, right? So can we start thinking as adults? ways that we can structure conversations about kids away from bad kid, good kid to complex kid yes. with many needs? And can we start structuring our response to kids to address those complex needs? You kind of just touched on a little bit there, but how might schools better address students' mental health needs mm -hmm. or even recognize them? Right. So in recognizing mental health needs, Schools often rely on someone telling them the kid's struggling with a mental health need. So about of the kids that go to school, about 20% will struggle with clinically significant mental health symptoms. Hmm. Um, many of them will go, I think less than a third of kids will receive the treatment that they need. Schools are dealing with these kids who are not receiving this treatment that they need on a day-to-day -day basis and are just this perfect place to connect kids to what they need. So one of the things we can do is something called universal screening for early emotional and behavioral risk. We do this with reading and math already. So for example, you can think of the testing that kids do in school, standardized testing. Hmm. They do it early, like let's say kids that do it in third grade. And so if they're not doing well, a team sits around and says, okay, this kid's in third grade, they're not doing well in reading, how can we support their reading? We're not doing this with mental health. 
We wait until kids have struggled for so long that they've started failing academically or they've been expelled, suspended so many times or like, I don't even know why I'm at school and they drop out of school. Yeah. Or they interact with the juvenile justice system, right? There are ways that we can start asking system- uh, systematically questions about kids' behavioral and emotional functioning early in their lives. So then we could connect them to the services they need early versus reactively once they've you know, been suspended or expelled a bunch. Um, so universal screening is one way to do this. One way that I really like is a survey screening tool that all kids can take so that they have input into saying, here's what's going on with me, and that all teachers can fill out very quickly. So each survey would take less than five minutes, and it would give you some initial data on where does this kid lie emotionally and behaviorally. A lot of kids, schools don't like doing this because the next question is, well, now I've, I've opened a can of worms. I've mm-hmm. identified all these kids that need supports. My response to that is, it's not like they weren't already there, and it's not like you weren't already going to identify them through all your other systems of like academic struggle or behavioral struggle through office discipline referrals. This data is preemptive versus reactive. You're going to get these kids at your desk anyways. Mm-hmm. Let's get them early. And work with schools to collaborate with community um, supports. For example, there are a number of community agencies that provide mental health services in the school, um, starting to hire our school social workers and counselors and treat them, you know, give them more space to do that kind of work. And even working with teachers to provide some school-based interventions, like an intervention called check-in, check-out, just requires somebody to check in with a kid um, during the day and help and the kid monitor their behavior and set goals for their behavior. Um, and there are other great programs to pair, like positive behavioral interventions and supports, social-emotional learning programs. There are tons of things we can do. But I think schools feel a little lost on, like, how do we apply these big things? It's, it's a lot hmm. to do. Um, you should become a school psychologist if you're interested in this stuff, though. <laughs> and you'll learn all about these programs and ways to connect them. Yeah, yeah it seems like given that, you know, the first onset of um, – like mental illness for many people is in adolescence that yeah, it'd be pretty important to kind of, can we nip this in the bud? Mm-hmm. Um, given that, and that, you know, we're seeing rates of um, uh, mental illness increasing um, across, you know, many parts of society. Are we seeing that initial onset age? Is that getting younger mm-hmm. or? I, so I don't know that we're, I, so maybe this is a little bit out of my area of expertise. I don't know that we're seeing mental illness, rates of mental illness increase. Um, I think what we're seeing is that some of the life stressors in the world are increasing and people are experiencing psychological distress, maybe not at clinical levels or DSM-5 diagnosable levels. Um, I think it has always been true that kids also struggle with mental illness. So you can think about early childhood stuff like um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or autism. I think we're getting better at identifying those things, maybe being more specific in our identification of those things. And maybe at least in schools, the rates of identifying haven't, or rates of intervening haven't caught up to our rates of identifying and treating. Yeah, there's a lot there. I kind of wonder sometimes how much is the increase in some of the rates of mental illness have to do with the fact that maybe it's getting less stigmatized and it's people are talking about it more and they're a little bit more open about it. So mm-hmm. whereas, you know, something 10, 20, 30 years ago, somebody never would have talked about and they would have just struggled with it is mm-hmm. now it's a little bit more okay to talk about. I mean, mm-hmm. it still could be better, but, and now we just know more about mm-hmm. what people are dealing with than we did. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And 
I also think that we've exhausted all our other, again, in the school setting, we've kind of exhausted a lot of our other options. Hmm. We've been talking about academics and working to make sure we've got these strong academics for a long time. And some of, and our schools are starting to ask, like, what's next? Like, we're, we've done all this great work in academics. Not that there isn't more to be done, but we've done all this great work asking, like, how can we get kids to be better readers, better mathematicians and scientists? How, but, but we're stuck. We're still seeing gaps. We're still seeing kids failing. We're still kids are still falling through the crack. And I think more people are starting to realize that next question is not just about learning your phonetics. It's about learning the skills it takes to be a learner. Hmm. It's about emotional regulation, problem solving skills, um, self-awareness, getting along with others, being able to have a strong ethnic identity and feel represented and feel engaged in the material, motivated. These are questions that schools maybe have been dipping their toes into, um, but we're asking a lot more now than we have in the past. Yeah, I think it's given what we know now about you know, stress and cortisol and what that does mm-hmm. to your ability to learn and concentrate and focus and all of that. It's like for some kids, it would be weird if they weren't struggling. And <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, so how do we address that? Mm-hmm. Also, it just seems to me that um, in my experience, um, having some having some of the systems in place that you talked about it helps increase the trust in the system it looks to me that a decision whether to continue to school or to just leave the school maybe has to do less with intellectual ability but maybe has to do more with the fact that can the students feel that they can trust the schools that they are attending well does the school actually care about them and once you create that environment maybe then that's the first stepping stone maybe then they can go ahead and start applying themselves and some of the interventions that you talk about about having these resources on for some of the students Mm -hmm. who are vulnerable would help them uh, to have more trust in the schools as if they are there not only to punish them or not only to tell them that you Mm -hmm. got bad grades but also to check in on them to to feel as if they care for them because Mm -hmm. a significant as students, you spend significant amount of your time in school, and uh, that's 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 the place where you care m- most about. It's it's the institution that you identify with, mm-hmm. and when you have a good caring environment there, then people might get more interested in some of the subjects, academic subjects, and things like that. I mean, I, I think your question you're asking is important and one that I mean, my research doesn't necessarily directly look at this, but I think in general, super important. And I saw as a school psychologist. Hmm. Does a kid want to be in school? Yeah. Right? Like, that's a that's a big question. If we think back historically, again, to education in the United States and globally, yeah. the, question, the way that schools were built were not for all kids. Yeah. Right? It, it wasn't until, like, fairly in recent and contemporary history mm. that kids who had varying levels of cognitive or physical abilities were even given space in the school. Yeah. Right? And, school, and kids, you know, who might have been identified as having a disability are still being sequestered and secluded in in schools across the nation. Do you want to show up if you're constantly uh, being told you don't belong with everybody else? Probably not. Hmm. And I think if we think about our immigrant kids, for example, or um, black youth or Latinx or Native American kids, kids who have historically been marginalized, why do I want to show up to a place that used to tell me I wasn't allowed to read, right? Or I wasn't allowed to go to school? Or why would I want to show up to a place where, um, you know, I have historically not been belonged? Hmm. Um, and then another thing to think again about our LGBTQ plus kids, school is a place where bullying happened. And sometimes yeah. the people doing the bullying were the adults in the building. 
So I think it's, you know, school has not historically been this feel-good place where I can just go to learn, as much as we would like to idealize it as so. Yes. But it doesn't mean it can't be. That's true. All it takes is really ha- helping teachers and other people, adults who work in schools, understand the importance of relationship building, um, understanding it's okay to make mistakes, but having access to the resources to do better in the future, which a lot of times they don't. Um, so again, it's a, it's a, it seems like a simple answer. It's not necessarily, it's complex, but it doesn't surprise me when kids are like, I don't like school. <laughs> um, that was, yeah. um, that was my experience growing up, um, uh, in high school or in middle school. I saw some of my friends, they were absolutely brilliant, but they dropped out because the teachers did not treat them properly. They had some preconceived notions about the person because of his caste or because of uh, what his parents did and they used to treat them as if they were of that particular caste or of that particular uh, categories uh, and there was nothing intellectually wrong with them they they showed interest in the subject but it was just that the teachers and the other people there they were just so un unwelcoming mm-hmm. about them they decided not to go there anymore and it always struck me because i just i just wonder what would happen if uh, they had more trusting institutions for them they would probably stay in school and you know uh, have a better life but um, these hurdles are usually and the other thing is sometimes these students they don't go and talk this to their parents because they the home is completely different environment for them there there would be like do whatever your teachers tell but the teachers are not doing things properly for uh, uh, are not taking care of the students so it's a, it was a sad situation mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I and that is why I would say that these types of systems that you're trying to bring into place or use through intervention uh, if it can help create uh, more trusting environment then that could act as a mediating thing for Mm -hmm. much more intellectual learning or something like that Mm -hmm. yeah I mean I'm not marginalized and I found plenty of reasons to not want to be (laughs) at school and you know when I think about it it's like I mean, I barely squeaked by, and I, I kind of like just did the bare minimum. But I yeah. think if I, you know, didn't look like how I look and lived in the neighborhood I lived in, I don't know if I would have squeaked by. Mm. Um, and so I think that's like a very real reality for a lot of people. Um, I want to talk a bit about um, a special topics class that you teach mm-hmm. here, and it focuses on. Um, yeah. media depictions of mental illness and you know the way I remember it going was we kind of got a like a crash course in media literacy and then we looked at how mm-hmm. you know how do depictions of, of mental illness like basically we kind of picked that apart um, do you represent representations of mental illness in the media do those feed into stereotypes about mental illness and if so how is that problematic Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> um, my new like thing that I like to talk to people about, and we talked about this in class, is even like, so media um, we define in class as being uh, any artifact that's cult- kind of culturally created, like a, a song or a TV show or a news article or things like that. And one of the first things we talked about was the use of the word crazy hmm. uh, in advertisements and media and things like that as a word to depict something other but as playing into stigma against people with mental illness. You know, we've worked really hard in our society, I think, to stop saying words in a derogatory way, like um, saying things are gay, like, oh, that's so gay. Like, we know that that's not okay, because when we create a zeitgeist where that's okay, what we're saying is it's okay to other people. It's okay to represent them in a derogatory way. Um, And I think 
the word crazy right now is the next kind of cultural hurdle for us. It's hard. We say it all the time, right? Um, but I think it's another word that we just need to cut out because we can use other words like absurd or bananas, right, that say the same thing without drawing on this history of marginalizing people who've had mental illness. Um, so that's one of my <laughs> one of my, my things that I'm kind of like working on. Um, but in general, yes, media has constantly um, marginalized other people with mental illness. If you think I'm a big horror movie aficionado, if you think back onto like how horror movies used to rely on creating scary things, it was through othering and mental illness was often a way that was done right the maniac killer strikes again um Psycho. it's always right. the guy that escaped from like the, <laughs> the, the mental that, institution yeah. and yeah. had like a hook hand and left yes. it scratching on the car or something right. like that or... right and so all of a sudden people are like oh god it's a mental institution crazy you know crazy and scary um and so i just want to push people to think about and so one of the reasons I wanted to teach that special topics course is because I was thinking about this in the school context but realizing it's something that happens to us at a global context and here you know nationally in the way our culture is created and can we start piecing apart what that is why does this stigma exist maybe because our media puts it out there all the time right mm. um, and so we've accepted it as okay hmm. one one thing I would say one of the pictures that I saw, which was very influential, was One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest, mm -hmm. where um, it was uh, they it was different because it was not showing crazy people as crazy, but it was showing uh, like how and I think it's based on real experiment where normal people went into asylums and they just acted normally and they got treated as if they were crazy, despite the fact that they acted um, normally. They, they were chalked off as crazy. Even the normal actions were chalked off as crazy. So uh, I would say that uh, which probably we can look at and say to bring such more such types of depictions where we have uh, we show the sides of people who have been put into mental asylum, show the types of conditions that they were in because in that mm -hmm. movie the conditions in which they were placed was absolutely horrible. Mm -hmm. So uh, we could uh, media we could use media to show shed mm -hmm. some light on the fact that how they are treated and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> yeah. So that's something I think the media could play a positive role and has been more recently. And we covered that in class too. Hmm. Um, but do you remember that movie we watched in class, um, Mr. Jones? Oh yeah. So that that, that <laughs> might bring me to my next question. I, I might have just gotten an answer to it, but I was going to ask you what you think for you um, from what you've seen. What are the best meaning like most realistic or most tasteful depictions of mental illness and the worst you know I'm not really great with names so this is going to really there's a movie with Halle Berry that was done and it was supposed to be a depiction of multiple personality disorder dissociative identity disorder and I thought they did a really fantastic job kind of walking through that um, because I think often dissociative identity disorder are seen as one of the most um horrifying mental illnesses so I think the most recent movie we also watched for class um, Split Split yeah right and it and it was showing dissociative identity disorder as a demonic possession right <laughs> and so it's an interesting you could become like a superhuman monster who right. knows what's yes. lurking in there right right yeah. um, whereas this movie with Halle Berry that's name I just cannot for the life of me remember right now takes a more realistic look at how you know that having 
dissociative identity disorder doesn't mean you suddenly switch from one personality to another, right? It's more, it could be more gradual hmm. um, and that there's much more to a human who's struggling with dissociative identity disorder than these square, scary switches from one thing to the next. Um, and so actually the National Alliance on Mental Illness every year does their own like Oscars where they nominate and award uh, media for po- not just positive but realistic um and uh, dignifying depictions of what it means to have mental illness. And so I'd push people to go check that out. Um, And real quick, we'll also say that um, I think there have also been uses of media to continuously break down stigma around mental illness. We see example for, I mean, one of my, like, things that have made me happy recently is like some really famous um, artists, like uh, Jay-Z, for example, coming out and talking about going to therapy. and kind of breaking down some of those stigmas around mental illness. So media can definitely be used for the positive. Um, it's just yeah. a matter of doing it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I've seen a bit a bit of that too. I think Dwayne Wade recently mm-hmm. um, talked about, like, because he's, you know, he's in his final season. He's mm-hmm. announced he's going to retire. And, and I think a reporter asked him what he was going to do. And he said, I'm probably going to go to a therapist to talk about, like, you know, how to deal with that transition. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's... Yeah, that's good. fantastic. That was, I guess that was my point with one fluke or a cuckoo's nest, mm-hmm. which uh, I think you made more gracefully than I did. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, yeah, any more questions? Uh, yeah, one question I would like to ask is, do you have any advice for undergrads who might consider psychology, especially school psychology, because mm-hmm. you just gave a very glowing uh representation of it so <laughs> I mean I think school psychology is just the coolest but I also say if people are interested in school psychology or they're questioning between school or clinical psychology as a graduate degree you can graduate with a PhD in school psychology and still sit for the EPPP to get your license as a psychologist who can then work in a capacity of a clinical psychologist okay. um, so I push people to like think about uh, that route as well if you like working with kids I think the big part is do you want to work with kids and are you interested in working with adults around issues to support kids hmm. um All right, advice for undergrads. Do well in your classes, get support, all that stuff, but go seek experiences outside of your classroom. Okay. Connect with other students through things like Psychology Club, Psychi. See if you can align your volunteering experiences or work experiences with working with people in really any capacity so you can get a feel for what that looks like. Volunteer in a research lab. Um, I also teach Psych 200 and the intro to psychology as a major course here and one of the things we're constantly stressing with our students is get involved in research because it's you it's a good way to understand the science of psychology what is what makes psychology knowledge how do we make psychology knowledge Hmm. Um, and then if you're interested in going to grad school in order to practice psychology more specifically through um, a more advanced kind of field you should have that on your resume so that would be my advice. Like, get get involved. Don't just come to school, go to class, and leave if you can help it. Hmm. See if you can connect to other psychology students. Get involved more distinctly with the psychology department. Do things in the community where you're using some of the skills that you're learning in class. Because I really think that's where psych comes alive and, and starts to become a, a real thing for people. Okay. So I think uh, we're out of questions. Yeah, that's all I got. Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much for, for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. I love yeah. talking about this stuff. So. <laughs> sure.